Well, this evening, we are kind of concluding a, a long journey that we began 94 times ago, uh, working through uh, the London Baptist Confession, kind of as a, a framework in studying uh, kind of a systematic theology. And tonight, we're going to be finishing up the looking at uh, of the last judgment really a, a great text for us to consider Acts 17 look at it on the screen and why don't you read it out loud with me let's say it together truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. As we looked on uh, last week, uh, the, the fact of the day being appointed, and uh, it is a day only known to the Father, but it is a day that it will sure come. But paragraph two, look at it on the screen with me. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But... The wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We see, the, we look at the, uh, the last judgment, uh, the purpose behind it. And really from beginning to end, we see God creating all things, and he created all things to show his glory and the consummation of all things and the judgment of all mankind is for his glory as well. Romans 9, Paul is really showing the sovereignty of God in all things. And he says in verses 22 and 23, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? There in Romans 9, we see that, that, um, that repeated word there, uh, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and the vessels of mercy prepared for glory. We see that God had foreordained before the foundation of even time that there would be an elect and a non-elect. It's not just that God chose some and didn't choose others, but the recognition in choosing he didn't choose and he set aside two different groups of people. One to show his wrath, to show his wrath on the reprobate. And the reprobate is just a different term uh, to say those who were not of the elect. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. 
those words shouldn't just come out of our mouths to rejoice. If God has, in his infinite mercy, saved us, it should be with a heavy heart that we recognize that we do not rejoice in the death of the wicked. We don't rejoice in uh, seeing uh, the eternal condemnation. For what was the Apostle Paul's heart? He said, if, if I could even be removed for the salvation of the kinsmen of the flesh, I would do it. Do we have a heart, even when talking about the judgment, uh, sometimes we, in our, our arrogance, can easily play the role of God and say, bring down judgment. But it should be with weightiness that we ever say anything like that, to recognize that it is a, a judgment that will come upon, but it is to show the glory of God in his wrath, that he is just We see the justice of God in bringing condemnation upon a wicked people. But we also see his justice as he provided a way of redemption, propitiation, a payment for the elect to show his mercy upon those not deserving. But it all comes back to God. The glory of God in him showing his just wrath and the glory of God showing his just mercy. The the confession kind of goes to great lengths. Multiple times it it uses uh, the term everlasting. We see that there is eternal damnation. There is eternal salvation of the elect. There is everlasting life. There is everlasting rewards, um, everlasting torments, everlasting destruction. Um, when Scripture repeats itself, it's for a reason. And we need to see that the, the men who wrote the confession wrote that for a specific reason because there is a finality in the judgment. That here on this earth, we have a common grace that God gives us. Even there in Romans 9, we saw that he endures with much long-suffering. I think it was uh, Gary this morning, we were talking about a gentleman uh, that he he knows, and he says, well, God must not be done with me yet. And our, our answer is, no, he is withholding his wrath. Come to faith in Christ. See the mercy of God giving us another breath right this moment. For his judgment is a judgment that is final. For the judgment that comes upon the elect, there are everlasting rewards. And sometimes we go, we get a little squirmish when we hear those type of things. And yet, that's the exact verbiage of Matthew 25, verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many of Uh, many things enter into the joy of the Lord. Paul writes in Corinthians that uh, we will stand before the judgment that all will be made manifest and the things that which are done for eternal value will be those that last. And we receive those rewards, not a reward to puff ourselves up, but to show the mercy and grace of God in our life. But just as much as we speak of eternal life, with God for those who have come by faith in Christ. There's an eternal damnation of the reprobate, an everlasting judgment. An everlasting judgment that, as the confession says at the, at the end of uh, paragraph 2, 
It is from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Everything, James says, that we have that is good is from God the Father. And when God the Father brings judgment, he takes away anything that is good. And the only thing that is left is that which is evil and his judgment. We are no longer standing under his common grace. It is removed and the full weight of his wrath his holy and righteous wrath. And we, we have to think way back, if you were here, when we looked at the character of God, to see how all of his attributes form a beautiful diamond that each one magnifies itself. And that his holiness doesn't just stand out by itself, but it, it is there with his unchangeableness and all of these other attributes that show us that God does not change. But that is a beautiful reminder. As a sobering reminder and as an encouragement there have been many attacks upon the understanding as the scriptures teach us of an everlasting judgment two wrong views one a very clear heresy the other one i would tend to call it a heresy as well but universalism says that all are saved in uh Probably long, longer ago than I realized, but Rob Bell wrote the book uh, Love Wins. And yet we see that as much as we want to avoid the judgment of the wicked, we can't. We have to ignore scripture to do that. And, and the, the view that all are saved at one point or another is heresy. The other is annihilationism, that, uh, that God is merciful enough that he, in his judgment, will, will pour his wrath out upon the wicked, but they will be annihilated and not be in an eternal torment. And yet, we see scriptures like 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with temporary destruction from the... No, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's an everlasting destruction. Mark 9 verse 48 Jesus says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, 46, in the same context of that, enter in the joy of your your Lord or your master. Uh, Later in verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's interesting that we're willing to talk about eternal life with the Father, but when we use that same word, we don't want it to sound eternal in judgment. And again, when people say, well, how can a just God punish somebody for all eternity, for some temporary sin, for a speck in eternity, the problem is with a misunderstanding of the holiness of God. When we create a God in our own image and, and, and lower his holiness to just a step above ours, we don't understand the wickedness of our sin. It is an eternal judgment but look at paragraph three in the confession is christ would have us to be certainly persuaded 
that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so we will have the day unknown to men that they shall shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. We see the imminent judgment uh, causes these things. First of all, it should deter us from sin. Just like a child who, if they know their parent is about to walk in the door, they're deterred from sin. Doesn't mean permanently, doesn't mean it changes the heart, but uh, on an external, uh, there, there's a deterring. If we, if we truly believe in the imminent return of Christ, but it also should be a, a, a comfort in our trials, as it says, consolation of the godly in their adversity. We just sang about it. How can we say even so? And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. A comfort in our trials, recognizing that we are not God and that we will be wronged upon this earth. Not just as we've seen in the recent weeks in Acts where uh, persecuted like Christ, but Christ was wrongly persecuted. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I always remember my uncle, uh, who's the youngest of my mom's siblings. He's kind of like been a big brother to me. He used to say, I don't get even, I get ahead. Um, and... Uh, I would take that on. And yet, that's not a biblical characteristic. The vengeance is not left to us. As David is a wonderful example of that anointed king, and yet he does not take that wrath out upon Saul as he has been chased and hiding. But he trusts God in his infinite judgment that he sees and he will take care of it. But the imminent return of Christ should also cause us to be watchful. Jesus says in Mark thirteen, thirty-five and following, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Are we watchful? Are, are we... Are we taking the knowledge of truth of an imminent return of Christ and just then kind of shutting our brain off? Well, he hasn't come back in 2,000 years, so it's still going to be more time. We don't know the day or the hour. We're called to be watchful, but also to be ready, not just watching, but to be physically ready. As Luke 12, the parable says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. 
And if it should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants that know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Throughout our time studying theology, our thought, theology should always lead to doxology, to praise, but it should also cause us to a life change. For what we believe should turn into our convictions and our actions. Not just be a belief. For the example of, you believe that there's a God, you do well, but even the demons believe. Do we just take information in and pack it in and file it and organize it and and regurgitate it in even a test form? Or do we take the word of God and say, help me to apply this? Sure, in the midst of a trial, we can cry out and say, even Lord Jesus, come quickly. But what about when things are going good? Do we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Do we truly say that it is better for us to die? That we long to be with our Savior? As we close looking at the confession, I, I hadn't planned on this, but in reading it, I just thought, what, a, what an encouragement. Look at the ending statements. I didn't put all the names of the signatories, but notice the goal in the confession. We, the ministers and messengers of and concerned for upward of 100 baptized churches in England and Wales denying Arminianism, being met together in London from the 3rd of the 7th month to the 11th of the same, 1689, to consider some of the things that might be for the glory of God and the good of these congregations, have thought meet for the satisfaction of all other Christians that differ from us in the point of baptism, to recommend, notice, to their perusal the confession of our faith which confession we own as containing the doctrine of our faith and practice and do desire that the members of our churches respectively do furnish themselves therewith. They desired that it might be, first of all, for the glory of God and for the good of the congregations. And even their ad... um, those who didn't agree with them theologically to read it, and they use the word uh, peruse or perusal, to see it, and then to furnish themselves with it, to apply it. This won't be the last time we open up the confession, but it's been a great study for us to walk through and um, to walk through on a fairly slow pace to consider the truths. But we recognize that the confession is not our authority. That it's the word of God. 
The word of God is to be our guide. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But we do have the blessing of great men of faith prayerfully considering how to articulate the biblical truths in a succinct way. And because of that, we're thankful for the confession. But let us never fall into the trap of thinking the confession is our guide. We praise God for it. We praise God for the articulation of truths and the way that we can help understand and and draw distinctions in ways that are helpful. And most of all, that it may cause us to know God and glorify Him more each day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the many weeks that we have taken time to study to understand a better picture of who you are, to understand your ways, to understand your word in a succinct way, and yet we have but scratched the surface. We thank you for faithful men who have come before us that have have laid down these, uh, these truths in written word, who have thought them through, have discussed them, who have... Uh, Put them in a way that we might be able to study and stand upon their shoulders. But Lord, we confess that as Christ said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. May that always be true of our lives. May the confession just be something that causes us to love your word more. And not just love it for head knowledge sake, but that we would see your glory and that your glory would change us. Lord, that we would have, over these weeks, tasted and seen that you are good. Lord, that our faith has been built up and strengthened. Lord, may any fruit that comes from these times be be what gives you glory and not us. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your perfect word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.